Hey, good morning, everyone. How are you today? Good to be here with you. My name's Pastor Rick. Welcome to the packing house. Uh, Believer, there is communion set up around the sanctuary. Jesus passed that out at the Last Supper. And when we take communion, believers, we are acknowledging what Jesus has done for us. We're remembering what he did on the cross for us. If you would stand with me, if you can, um, and we'll read a little out of Psalm 81. Psalm 81, starting at verse 1. Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. Raise a song and strike the timbrel, the pleasant harp with the flute. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we love to worship you, Lord. Thank you for this safe place that we have here to worship you, God, in song, Lord, and in Bible study, God, we love you. So please, God, fill this place with your Holy Spirit and draw men and women closer to you. In Jesus' name, we all agreed by saying, amen. Turn around and say hello to one another. God bless you guys.
Keep it. 
this morning and welcome for the first time, the Martins. Found 
You came and met me where I was Showed me your heart full of grace And your love surrounded me Showed me my place to your heart all the days of my life I will abide Sometimes it's not easy When my world feels like it's falling apart But then I remember The road to your heart And you come and meet me where I am Show me your heart full of grace your love surrounds me and shows me my place. Lead me on the road to your heart. Oh. to your heart all the days of my life I will abide I will abide oh I will abide verse in first Peter that talks about how the inheritance we've been given from our parents 
is an inheritance that inevitably leads to death and how the life-giving spirit of God through the blood of Jesus has given us a different inheritance and it comes through surrender to Jesus. we essentially were all sold into slavery until Jesus came to set us free. My mama was a slave and my daddy was a slave too. I was born into the world with
I want to join the Christmas choir. No, it's only ages four through fifth grade. You don't look four years old. Yeah, we are. No, you're not. Yeah, we are. No, you are not. Yes, we are. You guys shouldn't be lying in church. Yeah, he's right. We're gonna go apologize to him. If you guys wanna be part of the kids' choir, we're having our first meeting December 3rd at 1 p.m. right here in the sanctuary. And remember, it's for four years old to fifth grade. Man, I finally found something that I can be a part of. Come join the men's prayer meeting this Friday, December 1st at 7 a.m. Do you see these gigantic video screens? You know, where you read the worship lyrics and watch our amazing videos. Well, we need an experienced video technician for our media team. If that's you, apply in the church offices. If the Lord's leading you to give, we have boxes in the back of the sanctuary and in the lobby, or you can give online at our website. Now, before the Bible study, we're gonna take a few moments to pray to prepare our hearts for the Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this opportunity to come home, to spend this time with you, to learn from you. Please open up our minds, our ears, our souls to hear from you, Lord, and the, the message that you would like us to hear. Please uh, speak through Pastor Ed to give us the wisdom knowledge that we need to go through the everyday battle, Lord. Thank you for the armor that you supplied for us, Lord, the word that is the truth, Father. Thank you, Lord, for your love, your mercy, and your grace that's new for us every day. We thank you, Lord, for you, Father. Without you, there'll be no goodness. In your mighty, powerful name, amen. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Emma. That was wonderful. If you wouldn't mind standing with me, if you can, we're working our way through the Bible verse by verse. We're in Acts chapter 9 this morning. And this is uh, the moment that Saul is, has an encounter with God and is changed for eternity, starting in verse one. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus so that if he found any who were in the way, believers, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? <laughs> then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Good question. Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, 
but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Let's stop there and pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that you've left this story of this man's conversion experience for us, that we might see your grace in it, that we might see your favor from heaven on this man who was a murderer. Thank you that you want us to see with eyes that are spiritual. Speak to us now, we ask, from the story. Teach us so that we might leave this place differently than the way we came in. We ask that in Jesus' name, and all of God's children agreed by saying, Amen. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, more than uh, 40 years ago, there was a song with that title, Blinded by the Light. Some of you... uh, might remember, might be old enough to remember 1977 and Blinded by the Light, Manfred Mann and his Earth Man. Some of you are old enough to remember 1977, but you can't. You don't remember anything that happened that year. <laughs> so the, the song was written by Bruce Springsteen, and, uh, and it's pretty obscure. The words of it are hard to follow. In fact, I'm not sure what kind of condition he was in when he wrote it, but it's uh, numbered at number 82 of the 500 best rock and roll songs ever written. But let me give you one of the lines from it. He wrote, Mama always told me not to look into the eye of the sun, but Mama, that's where it is fun. I don't know either. Okay. So, he's writing about uh, something completely different, but we're looking at the original blinded by the light experience. It happened to Paul, the apostle, or Saul, his, he's called in the story, which is his Hebrew name, and he has an encounter with God. Uh, he thought he was the most religious man on the planet. He was sincere, but he was wrong, and that's an important lesson for all of us that You can be sincere about what you believe, but you actually can be absolutely wrong about it. So in this passage, Saul asks very important questions, two of them, questions that you and I should ask also. The first one is, he said, who are you, Lord? And that's a very good question for you to ask. God, who are you? Who is Lord of the universe? What is his name? And and that's really what he was asking. He thought he was helping God, but he was not on the same wavelength at all. Who is Jesus Christ to you? That's really the question. What do you think of him? Your answer determines where you will spend eternity. The second question is almost as good. After you know the answer to the first question, who the Lord is, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's a really critical question for every person in this room. God, what do you want me to do with my life from this day on? And maybe you're already on that pathway, and I don't mean to create doubt at all, but just that the questions are very, very important. Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? If you get the first one wrong, if it's not Jesus, 
and you come up with some answer like Buddha or Confucius or someone else, one of the 300 million gods of the Hindu religion, and then you ask, what do you want me to do? You just don't know what kind of answer you might get. But if you get the answer to the first question right, who is Lord? His name is Jesus. And then you can ask the second. So a quick review of where we've been, if you're just joining us. The book of Acts is really the recorded history of the first Christian church in the world. In Jerusalem, Jesus told his disciples to wait there until the Holy Spirit had come, fallen upon them. Chapter 2, Pentecost happens. The Holy Spirit falls on a group of 120 people. And Peter stands up and gives a sermon that's so powerful that 3,000 people surrender their lives to Jesus. Church goes from 120 to 3,120 in one afternoon. And then he does it again the following day. In the next chapter, Peter speaks this time on the Temple Mount. 2,000 more people come to the Lord. So now the church is busting at the seams. And as it has grown so fast, there were difficulties in the church. And there became some contention, two groups of people. Both groups were widows, people who had lost their husbands. And one group was widows who were Hebrew-speaking Jews and the other were widows who were Greek-speaking Jews. And that led to them saying, well, we're not getting as much food as that group, and just some normal back and forth. Church groups arguing, who, who would have thought of that? And so uh, it turns out to be, uh, the answer is seven men. They choose seven young men to wait on tables, lowly job, servant's job, but that's what Jesus told us to be become servants to one another. And so these young men, seven of them, are waiting on tables. That's some extra time. One of them went out and began to preach in Israel, in Jerusalem. And he's arrested because he's claiming that Jesus is the Messiah that's long awaited for. And so uh, Stephen is arrested, comes before the high court, is found guilty, and is sentenced to death, stoned to death. Well, one of the men, it says, who was standing there and was in agreement with him being killed was this man named Saul. And this Saul will have an encounter that we just read here in chapter 9. And uh, he will become a key player in how God reaches the world. In fact, I would dare say every person in this room owes in, in some way the Apostle Paul, for him having written about a third of the New Testament and taking the gospel to Europe for the first time. He went up through Turkey, all the way up into what's today the Soviet Union, the Ukraine, Dalmatia, which is Croatia today, down into Greece and Italy. And then it spread from there to all over Europe, as well as India to the east and the west, and then all of us, or many of us in this room, were touched by the Apostle Paul first going to Europe so the gospel could go then to America, and here we are 2,000 years later. So we're looking at the story of this man and how he came to discover the grace of God. Very important word. Uh, 
we emphasize that a lot here in this church because it is God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor towards you as an individual, every person in this room. It is his grace that is pursuing you, maybe even brought you here this morning, because that's what happened to Paul. Now, the grace of God shouts to us from this story because Paul gives God the credit for it, 1 Corinthians 15.20, excuse me, 15.10. He said, but by the grace of God, the undeserved gift of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, laid over him, was not in vain. I, I didn't waste it when God's grace came to me. But I labored more abundantly than they all. I, I, I worked at taking the gospel. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Paul lived in a moment of time that was a dividing point in those who want to serve God. Before Jesus died on a cross, there was a covenant, a testament, called the Old Testament by most believers. And that agreement was based upon first 10 commandments and then a total of 613 commandments just rules and regulations that you needed to keep. But then when Jesus died on the cross, as Paul himself wrote, that all those ordinances, all those laws were nailed to the cross and they were removed from your life and mine. And now all of those 613 laws are contained into a new covenant, a new testament. You might notice if you have a Bible on your lap, you're on that side of the book, and the dividing line is the cross. What's the new covenant? Well, God told us before it happened, so when it happened, we'd know it was his plan. In Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, and God said, in that day, I will take out your heart of stone. Most of us in this room have experienced that and I'll put in a heart of flesh. And then I will write on that heart the law of love. The law of love. Love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Then he said, and I will cause you to walk in my ways. I will put my Holy Spirit within you and change your want to. I'll change you from the inside out and you'll find yourself wanting to do the right thing, even though your flesh wants to do the same old stuff you always wanted to do. That's what Paul has, is experiencing in this story, that he went from thinking he was serving God sincerely serving God, but he was sincerely wrong. And that's a warning to all of us. We think we're spiritual, we think we're, we have these ideas about God. He asked the question, who are you, Lord? 
And then he said, and what do you want me to do? Important questions for all of us. So it's our, our story opens with the day that Paul was apprehended by grace. And that's a good word because God is chasing men and women all over the world. Some of you are probably here this morning, unbeknownst to you, that it's God chasing you that brought you to this place so that you would understand his love for you. So Paul is being apprehended by God's love. He is wooing Paul, drawing him as he has drawn all of us or most of us here in this place. Apprehended. So this part breaks up, this short, only nine verses, breaks up into three parts. Attitude, Paul's attitude between one and two, sincere but wrong. Then his attention, three through seven, on wanting people to conform to his very conservative view of, of really the Bible, that you try and do all these rules. And then he's apprehended. God chases him down and grabs him. Grace pursues a man in the opening verse here. Verse one, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Saul thinks the way to solve the problem of Christianity is to kill all of the Christians. Other men have tried that. Stalin tried it. Mussolini tried it. In fact, that's exactly what happened in Germany. So the little Greek says that he was breathing in and out threats of murder. It was the very atmosphere in which Saul had lived. He, he was in this climate dedicated to this bloody quest. And you go, how did he get that way? He thought he was serving God. He convinced himself he was a terrorist in the first century. Can you see that? He thought he was doing what God said to do. But the old was past. And suddenly he's living in a new age, but he's not aware of it. A.T. Robertson, the Bible commentator, said, threatening and slaughter had come to be the very breath that Saul breathed. Like a war horse who snuffed sniffed, excuse me, the smell of battle of black powder burning. It became his whole life. He hated Jesus. He hated Christians. He hated anything that had to do with Christianity. He's the worst criminal ever. What? That's what he said. He said he was the chiefest of sinners. And that's the story of grace, that God takes the very worst sinner that's ever lived, far worse than any person in this room or within the sound of my voice, took him and brought him close. And when you get close to Jesus, he starts changing you. So he goes to the high priest. We know who this high priest is because in Acts chapter 7, that's what happened to Stephen. He went before the high priest. His name? Caiaphas. That may sound familiar to you because he popped up again in our lifetime, at least most of us in this room. In 1990, a bulldozer was creating a new park in Jerusalem, south side of the city. Been there. And uh, 
while they were flattening the top of a, a mountain, the bulldozer's blade went in and the whole front of the bulldozer sunk into a, a big cave. And they backed it out, then they went, uh-oh. And they called in the archeologists and the anthropologists and they pulled out that box. That box is called an ossuary. And in the first century, they, that was what the bones of the person who died was placed in for final rest. On the end of the box, it says in Hebrew, Joseph Caiaphas, chief priest. And inside are the bones of a 60-year-old man. 1990, this happened. You can go to Israel, and you all should. Maybe not this week, but sometime you need to go to Israel, and you need to go to the museum called the Shrine of the Book, and you need to walk up to that box and look at it. That is a proof, archaeologically and anthropologically, that this book speaks truth. Right next to it is another stone. It's called the David Stone because it says King David of Judah on it. It was found about eight years before that, up in Tel Dan, up in the northern part where a lot of Hezbollah are trying to come into Israel right now. Right next to that is a huge piece of limestone and carved on it, it says Pontius Pilate, prefect of Syria. Pontius Pilate, the Pontius Pilate that condemned Jesus to death. There it is, written. God is slowly unearthing for you and I in this generation proofs that the Bible is truth. And as more and more of these archaeological finds take place, it becomes more and more difficult to dismiss Jesus or these stories in the Bible. So he goes to Caiaphas and asks for some letters of recommendation, like we would say today. So we can go to the churches, the synagogues, Jewish churches in Damascus, the next country north. And he found any, it's verse two says, and he found anybody in the way then, men or women, he would bring them back to Jerusalem, don't miss this, to bring them before a court, find them guilty, capital offense, and stone them to death for blasphemy. So he was going north, about 140 miles to that city. That's Damascus in, in 1899. That main street that runs through the center of town is called Straight Street, because it is. And uh, there it is in uh, about 10 years later. And that's Damascus, downtown. He's going there because there are all these synagogues there. It is uh, an old, old street. There's a Roman Arch of Triumph from the first century and that's the straight street that goes through it. And this is the Grand Bazaar of Damascus that you can go to. Tourists like to, uh, my wife likes to go to places like that because it has all the perfume bases for the finest perfumes in the world, crushed rose petals. And that's the wall of Damascus that we'll see in a couple of weeks that Paul the Apostle is let down over to escape him being captured by the Jews. 
and that's another late 1800s picture. So Paul has been sent on a journey to Damascus, another country. Again, it's a setup by God. He's moving him like he's moving you and I around. We don't know that the coincidences often that happen to us are not coincidences, they're God incidences. And so he's sending them to the next country north because he's gonna use Paul to go all over the world, the entire known world that Paul will take the gospel to and preach. So Saul is scheduled to become the apostle to the Gentiles. God is looking at the whole earth. Verse three. And as he journeyed, Saul is heading north, near Damascus. Tradition says he was almost to the city gate. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, a very, very bright light. Now, in Revelation 22, verse 5, it says that there's no sun needed in the new heaven, in the new earth, because God himself is there and he is the source of light. God often uses light to get in touch with people. The light which flashes around Saul, he said, brighter than the sun. And years later, he described it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In scripture, the word light uh, means moral purity, completeness. It was the voice that said, let there be light when the Big Bang took place and photons appeared out of nothing. Got to think about that a little bit. All possible matter condensed down to a dot smaller than the period in one of the Bibles you're looking at. Singularity is called, and, and then it exploded. What a lucky shot. The earth came out of it. Lucky? It's the same light that brought the burning bush in front of Moses that didn't burn up the bush. It's the same light that accompanied Israel in the wilderness. Every night there was a pillar of light. It was the same brilliant light that showed up on the hills of Bethlehem when the shepherds were so frightened. It's the same powerful light that his disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus showed in all his glory. This is the light of the world. That's what Jesus said. I am the light of the world. And he fell to the ground, verse four. And he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The light was so strong it knocked him down. Suddenly change. He's been hit by something. Charles Spurgeon, the old British pastor said, Paul was a great man. And I have no doubt that on the way to Damascus, he rode a very high horse. But it takes only a few seconds to radically change the man. How quickly God brought him down to the ground. (laughs) 
You see, conversion requires humility. No one ever asked God into their heart who was self-confident that they didn't need God, that they didn't need forgiveness, that they didn't need his love. Paul suddenly realized it. Now, you'll hear me using Saul and Paul interchangeably because it's the same word. Saul is the Hebrew word, the King Saul that tried to destroy King David. So his Hebrew name is Saul. His Greek name is Paul. Same guy, okay? So he needed some humility in his life. He was knocked off his high horse. First Peter 5, 5. Be clothed in humility. Put it on like a garment. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You're right. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you in due time. Oh, he'll lift you up. But you have to be willing to go down first. So, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus speaks. Why, why persecute me? Jesus asks. Now, we naturally think that Saul was, well, he was persecuting believers, Christians. Same thing. Jesus said so in Matthew 25, 42. And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you do for one of the least of my brethren, I will, you did it unto me. So that's the way God looks at you. We notice the first words that Jesus speaks to Saul of Tarsus are a question. God likes to pull questions out of us. In, in the Garden of Eden, his question was, Adam, where are you? Where art thou, Adam? You're going to try and hide from me, really? I made this whole place. God is still asking men that today. Where are you? You see, unless you understand where you are, you can't see your need to answer God. Where are you? Well, I'm lost as a rock, Lord. Then you'll get a response from God. Well, I'm doing fine. Everything's good. It's all good for me. You can't find your way back until you know where you really are, where you're coming from. Where are you? Where are you in your life? What's behind it? What are your motives? Why are you doing what you're doing? What's your reason? How do you hope to accomplish that by your direction? What is it that is driving you this way? Is it fame? Is it money? Is it power? Why are you persecuting me? He says to Saul. You can be sure that in the hours of darkness that will happen to Saul for the next three days, he has time to put it all together. He's trying to figure out this thing. Notice that Jesus calls this name twice, Saul, Saul, because of the importance of it. The Greek language doesn't really have a modifier that says greater than, you know. Saul, really, really Saul? That's what he's saying. 
Jesus did the same thing with Martha. Martha, Martha, why are you worried about so many small things? He even did it to the city of Jerusalem. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, where art thou? How is it? You are the one who kills the prophets that I've sent to you. How I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. God could have been upset at Saul, but he's strangely not. He acts with compassion and mercy. So Saul said, who are you, Lord? It's funny that he uses the word Lord. Who are you, master, controller? (laughs) And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I don't believe for a second. He said it angrily. He didn't say, you're persecuting me. (laughs) No, he said, Saul, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. God knows Saul. A goat is, is a long, sharp stick used in animal husbandry. If you try and plow a field with an animal, you would have a long stick with an iron point on it. And if the oxen pulling the plow would stop, you know, we're all Americans, we probably, the closest thing to a plow is we've done a garden that's four foot square and we think we've really labored, you know. But... Uh, when a couple of oxen are pulling the plow and he hits a hard spot in the ground or a rock or something, then the one who's steering them will take that little poker and poke them right between the the leg itself and the hoof. And uh, it will make uh, a horse kick out its foot forward, which means the direction you're trying to get him to go. Don't know about oxen and never tried to do anything like that, but I assume it works the same way. You're kicking against it. Saul, you are struggling. Now, this is the ancient proverb. Uh, he knew exactly what Jesus meant. You're, you're kicking against the uncomfortableness of the spike against you. The, the idea is that Paul himself has been goaded. He'd, or he'd been hit, pricked in his conscience, the old King James says, with the things he'd heard, what he'd learned about Jesus. Don't resist God's conviction. Conviction is a good thing when God puts his finger on something in my life. We all need it. it it's, it's a gauge that tells us where we are. Most of us dr- drove in a vehicle that had a, a gas gauge, unless you're an EV vehicle without any gas. So, that's a thousand jokes, or I'm not going to do it. And, uh, but the gas gauge, I don't like in the car. You know, it's moving towards E. And... I want to ignore it, and I do ignore it a lot until it gets right down towards E. And then if you keep ignoring it, then you walk. It's that simple, right? It's not complicated. Same thing with God. He's telling us you're you're running on empty. You're trying to do all this yourself. You're not asking for any help from the creator of the universe like he's going to run out of power if you ask him for it. God knows how to get our attention. The God of heaven hunted down the hunter. Paul himself is hunting people, right? And he failed. He felled, knocked down his prey, P-R-E-Y. And it's this man who has 
his hand on. It's the same voice which spoke the world into existence, the same voice that called Adam in the garden, the same voice that has spoken judgment, spoken to Moses on Mount Sinai, spoken to Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth! And the man who was dead in the grave for days came out. The same voice that raised the widow of names, son from the funeral pyre. The same voice who cried out to Talestai, it is finished from the cross. The price is paid for your sin and for mine. He did it that day. And he announced it, it is finished. The same one that cries out to you right now, follow me. That's what Jesus said to all his disciples. Come, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Someday, the same voice that will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear that voice. I want to hear those words. Jesus had come to make a change in Saul's life, and he'll make a change in yours. I am Jesus, he said. (laughs) Those words must have cut through Saul. He's chasing people who are connected to Jesus. He wants to kill them all. I am the Messiah, King Jesus. (laughs) That's funny, Lord. It sounded like you just said you were... Jesus, Uh uh-oh, I'm in deep caca here. Verse six, trembling and astonished. Lord, what do you want me to do? He's in awe, he's trembling in the presence of God and you would be too and so will I someday. And the Lord said to him, arise, go to the city and you will be told what you must do. Notice he didn't tell him. He said, just go to the city. I'll get in touch with you again. <laughs> Check back with me. Lord, who are you? What do you want me to do? That's the way that God leads us, just the next step. If I'm obedient to that step, then we'll know the next one, and the next, and the next. God is trying to keep us depending on him. He wants us to stay in touch with him. I was looking at old hymns, looking for one for us to learn to sing here. And there's an old English hymn that reads, There blew a horn in Bethlehem. Christ sat on Mary's knee. And no, she said, my child, she said, they blow that horn for thee. For thou shalt hunt the heart of man. Thy prey from hole to hole. Tell it the last thy little hands shall close upon his soul. What? You see, God is wanting to grab a hold of your life. Take a hold and direct you. And the men, verse 7, who journeyed with Saul were speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Literally, it says they heard a noise. There wasn't any diction to it. There weren't any syllables that made sense. No distinguishing words. Then Saul, verse 8, arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. (laughs) But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So he stands up, but he can't see a thing. He gropes around like many are doing today, groping around, trying to find a way. And he finds one of the hands of the men, He was the leader, right? So here's this 
guy probably in armor and with a huge sword. And now he's been reduced to holding on to the hand of one of the guys that are with him. And they led him into Damascus. In Acts 22, there's two other places where the story is recounted in the book of Acts. One of them is chapter 22, verse 11. And when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came to Damascus. So they had to take him by the hand. Verse 9. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. It was his choice. He didn't want to eat or drink. He was fasting. Why? Because he wanted to know what was happening. I think it's significant it was three days, although I don't entirely know why. But I noticed that God likes to do that. Jonah spent three days in the belly of a whale. Jesus spent three days in a tomb before he was raised from the dead. So now Saul, three days in blindness. Some people change their ways when they see the light, but some of us only change our ways when we feel the heat. Know the difference? I've been there. Pretty stubborn. So, there's an old well-known poem by Francis S. Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. And he speaks of God pursuing him, really the theme of this whole section. And he wrote, I fled him, I ran from God. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the archer of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways from my own mind. And in the midst of years, I hid from him in underrunning laughter. Probably no other story in the Bible more beautifully displays this relentless pursuit than the story of Paul. But there are many others Moses was a murderer, yet God had to take him 40 years out in the desert. And it was 80 years old. God appears to him in a burning bush. Samson sinned over and over again in his life. Terrible sinner. But he was supposed to be destroying God's enemies And he actually destroyed more in his death than he did in his life. God used that. Abraham lied twice that his bride was, in fact, his sister. But God, who touched his life and made him the father of a nation. Jacob, the deceiver, yet God transformed him and used him greatly. Simon Peter preached his greatest message And had his greatest ministry after he had denied Jesus three times. I don't know the man. Your past condition is no obstacle. Your current condition, your present circumstances are not an obstacle to God. If he could save Saul of Tarsus, he can save you. Close with the true story. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace?, tells the story of a prodigal daughter of a family that he knows well that grew up in Traverse City, Michigan. He writes, disguised with her 
old-fashioned, excuse me, disgusted with her old-fashioned parents who overreacted to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts, she runs away. She ends up in Detroit, where she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. The man with the big car, she calls him Boss, recognizes that since she is underage, men would pay a premium for her. She goes to work for him. Things are good for a while, life is good, but when she gets sick for a few days, it amazes her how quickly the boss turns out to be mean. Before she knows it, she's out on the streets without a penny, and she still thinks that a couple of tricks a night are enough, but that was just enough to support her drug habits now. One night while sleeping on the metal grate, the steam grates in the city of Detroit, she began to feel less like a woman of the world and more like a little girl. She begins to whimper, God, why did I leave? My dog back home eats better than I do now. She knows that more than anything in the world, she wants to go home. Three streets calls to home get three straight connections with the answering machine. Finally, she leaves a message. Mom, Dad, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way and will be there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, I'll understand. During the seven-hour bus ride, she prepared a speech for her father. And when the bus comes to a stop in the Traverse City Station, the driver announces a 15-minute stop. And she thinks, 15 minutes to decide my life. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect, but not one of the thousand scenes that she had played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees. There in the bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. And they're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes and begins to memorize and repeat her speech. He interrupted her. Hush, child, he said. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. We'll be late. There's a big party waiting for you at home. And for you in heaven. Would you stand please and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have left these records for us, these breadcrumbs that we're to follow, to come to a saving knowledge of a relationship with you. Lord, we want to see you. We want to grow as we continue to serve you. And Lord, we pray for anyone here this morning that is struggling, that needs your grace to surrender. Christians, please pray. 
So I wonder if there's someone here this morning, maybe you're here for the first time, or maybe you've been here before, or maybe you used to be here and you're just coming back, and then you've wandered off the path. And every time I talked about sin, you struggled a little bit because you know you're not doing very good with God. This moment is for you. We wouldn't do anything to embarrass you, but if you'd like to know that your sins are forgiven, if you'd like to know that you're going to spend eternity with God, if you're ready to surrender your heart to him, would you let me know you're ready by looking up at me and raising my hand, raising your hand like I am, and I'll know that you're saying, Pastor, I need God's forgiveness. I need his love. I need his touch right here where I'm standing. Bless you and you and you, two of you. God bless you and you, sir. Yes, God bless you, young lady. You, ma'am, God bless you. Couple, God bless you in the back. You, sir, all the way in the very back. God bless you. If I missed your hand, don't worry, God didn't. He never does. He sees every hand. Those of you that raise your hands, would you please pray to God out loud with all of us? We'll do it with you to make it easy. We're going to ask him to forgive our sins, and he will do it right where you're standing. So everybody, please say, Lord Jesus, I surrender. I give you my life. Please forgive my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can serve you from this day forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. Those of you that prayed that, we'd encourage you to go to these double doors. We'd love to give you a Bible, pray with you. Anyone that needs prayer, go there. To the rest, we're going to sing one more song. You're welcome to stay if you want to worship with us, and you're welcome to leave if you need to. Let's praise the Lord together a moment. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful with your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. So I walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out on, turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord, and blessed be your name. And blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you grace 
And may the Holy Spirit so fill your lives that others look at you and say, what is that I see in you? God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Give somebody a hug before you go home.